So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Tuesday, we head to the battlefields of medieval Spain to witness the very first ambulance. On Wednesday, it's the anniversary of the day Coca-Cola's creator hit on his winning formula. He dropped the wine, but kept the cocaine. On Thursday, the thief who stuffed the crown jewels down his trousers. And on Friday, when free-spirited Danish parenting put 90s New York in a tears. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every week weekday wherever you get your podcasts. Hello man fans, Ollie Man here with The Modern Man, the monthly magazine show for your ears. And here's what we've got coming up for you today. The police were quite disgusting. On one occasion I had wrapped loads of Christmas presents up and a police officer came in and purposely trod all over them. Suspicion, violence and guilt by association. One lawyer's quest to exonerate her own brother. Plus. But if it does happen, then don't be surprised if your piercer equips you with what's known as a rubber chicken. Alex Fox on the pros and cons of getting your dick pricked, and Ollie Pitt goes a milking. It's all to come in this edition of The Modern Man. But first, your letters, and this is in from Nadia from Canada, who says, Ollie, thanks for your interview with Adam Campbell last month. A heart-wrenching story of grief, vulnerability and perseverance. But it is so necessary, she says, to talk about the dark parts of life and how people live through them. Uh, And John from Budley Salterton as well. It's a real place, I checked. Says, Ollie, Adam's story was so moving, I found myself in tears. It made me sit up and think how precious every moment in life is and to be sure to enjoy it thoroughly. Capital letters. (laughs) Indeed, John. Uh, I've been listening to you guys since your first episode, he says, and before that to answer me this for a decade. So a massive thank you was long, long, long overdue. (laughs) So I've bought you and the team a beer each to say thank you so much for the hard work you do to put together such a brilliant polished show each month. If only my wife was so understanding, John. (laughs) Cheers. Uh, Please do join him and support us. Just click beer money on our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. P.S. He says, the world does feel bloody miserable at the moment, what with all the post-pandemic war slash recession slash cost of living crisis. So, Ollie, could you please do an upbeat slash funny slash heartwarming middle feature to lift the spirits sometime soon? Uh, Well, you're not going to get it this month, John. (laughs) There are some dark moments in this month's middle feature too. But I hear you. We will bear that in mind, um, and I can promise at least a Laura Laura laughs in today's edition of The Zeitgeist, although recording it made me feel quite sick. Uh, before we get on to that, though, a quick thanks to our sponsors this month, wine52.com. Now, if that name sounds familiar to you, it's because they are the wine subscription service from the good folks at Beer52, who you will know have sponsored this show for seven years now, incredibly. Um, and I promise... They're just as good at wine as they are at beer. The service, the taste, the presentation. Their wine boxes are so good. You get three bottles each month. I got a truly scrumptious citrusy one from Portugal this month. Fresh, white, fruity one. Uh, And if you don't believe me, then why not try some free wine for yourself? That's right, free wine. If you go to wine52.com slash man and cover the postage costs of £5.95, you can get three bottles delivered right to your door. Each month, they visit an exciting new region and bring back a selection of exceptional wines for their members. You can customise your case to your taste by choosing from white, red or a mixture of wines. And after your free case, yes, you will be part of the monthly wine club. You won't want to cancel, but you can. There's no minimum commitment. You can pause at any time. So that is wine52.com slash man. The word wine, the numbers 52.com slash 
M-A-N-N, to claim your case today. And thanks again to them. Uh, right, in today's episode, you will learn what joint enterprise is, you'll learn why a Prince Albert piercing is called that, and you'll learn why rice isn't always nice. Let's go. Right, time for the zeitgeist. Your trends tested with Manscaped with a man who has a new job, I'm told, Ollie Peart. Today is my first official day. And rather than working on the job, I'm here recording this. Do you want to commit this to record? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I am a senior content producer for the BBC. Content producer. That's a very BBC job title, isn't it? What does that actually mean? Yeah, it's just content, isn't it, Ollie? Is it making tea? Yeah, I just make I make content, <laughs> aka tea. Yeah, I'm really good at it. Uh, let's talk about your uh, trend for this month, which is vegan milk. Mm. Um, Oscar in Preston wrote to us last month and challenged you. Well, first of all, to tell us what's in it. So I imagine having had a month to research the side of a bottle, yes, <laughs> that is an answer you can provide. Well, specifically, potato milk was the question, wasn't it? Yeah, well, he'd been to Waitrose and spotted some potato milk in the wild and was scandalised by its existence. Yeah, and he's asking about it because potato milk is uh, set to be, Ollie man, the big plant-based milk trend of 2022. Oh, is it? He's on it, is he? <sighs> he he's on it. I mean, we're into, what, April now? And yeah. uh, <laughs> Those I've yet press to releases see it on the shelves. I'm looking dated. I've, yes. Yeah. And I've, I've yet to see it. I haven't actually seen it. Have you seen potato milk? I mean, if we can expand potato milk to include vodka, I'm a frequent <laughs> consumer. <laughs> no, you definitely can't. So what's in it? Maltodextrin, pea protein. Uh, rapeseed oil, fructose, sucrose, calcium carbonate, and of course, potato. 6%. Yeah, there's a high proportion, isn't there, of rapeseed oil? Like you mentioned rapeseed oil like it's just one of the ingredients. It's a large percentage, which is oil, that you're drinking in your coffee. It just feels like that can't be good for you. Well, one of the problems that manufacturers of plant milks have is that cow's milk is thick, it's creamy, it's lovely and it's delicious. Uh, plant milk is basically... You know, in, in in its essence, if it was just the plant-based milk, it's literally water and the thing that you're putting in it, the nut yeah. or the potato or the, you know, the plant-based thing. Mm. So the reason that all of that other stuff's in there is to thicken it up it's and make it, it more creamy. And the other thing is it doesn't have the level of protein in it that cow's milk has. Mm. That's one of the reasons that cow's milk originally was promoted as like the health drink, you know, got milk, that kind of thing. It's because mm. of the amount of protein. It was, it was advertised as a health thing. And with plant-based milks, they just don't have that, with exception being soy soy milk does have quite a high amount of protein in it but all these other ones oat milk that kind of stuff they don't so they have to put things in like b12 uh, and vitamin d all those kinds of things to try and make it more healthy than it actually is because it's basically just water and nuts now as ever here in the zeitgeist we like you to get hands on um so we have a selection of ollie pit milk in front mm-hmm. of us yep i've milked it myself before we get to tasting that can't wait uh, I suppose we should answer the question as to people listening to this wondering why this is such a trend. Like, mm. it's now got to the stage that I see oat milk and soy milk, not just in posh coffee shops run by hipsters in Shoreditch, but everywhere. Like, you know, if you went to Asda, you could probably get a soy milk latte, right? So the reason is, as far as I understand, to do with sustainability in the environment. Why? Well, simply put, it is more environmentally friendly than cow's milk because you have, I mean, I think globally there are something like 250 million dairy cows, you know, and they produce a lot of methane, they need a lot of water. It's a highly industrialised process which causes a lot of pollution, so it's Mm. not great. That's one of the main reasons. You don't have that same impact when you're producing things like oats and soy and nuts. There still is an environmental impact, but it's not to the same extent as, as dairy or cow's milk. 
But then the nuts, if they're not grown in Britain, for example, mm-hmm. then come on a plane or a boat, that has an impact, doesn't it? Well, that's what I'm saying, yeah. They're, they're still and if you had a cow in your garden, I mean, I don't, <laughs> yeah. but if you had a cow in your village, say, and you knew where the milk came from, mm. is it still more like environmentally friendly to buy a carton of oat milk? Well, probably not, but back in the day, you know, drinking cow's milk was actually seen as like a bit of an odd thing to do. And the only people that did drink cow's milk were farmers because the pasteurised process wasn't a thing. Mm. They had the cow straight out of the tip, mate. Yeah, yeah. And they could drink it, whereas everybody else just saw it as slightly barbaric and a little bit weird, squeezing a cow's teat and drinking it. And actually, it was linked to a lot of infant mortality because it wasn't pasteurised. You know, and people the, were supplementing breast milk with it. Exactly. And also, in in... Western Europe, Northwestern Europe especially, we drink a high amount of, of dairy compared to other parts of the world. They don't really drink it because they're lactose intolerant. We're not. There was some weird like DNA mutation about 10,000 years ago, which mm. meant that Northern Europeans can handle uh, drinking lactose. So 90% of the UK population can drink dairy, whereas two thirds of the world's population can't. And actually the world's most drunk milk, animal milk, is goat's milk. Not cows. A complex evolutionary process that exactly. you've just distilled down to straight out the tit, mate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, I can wait no longer, and not just because I have one, two, three, four espressos in front of me, which are making me crave caffeine. Mm-hmm. Let's drink your milk. Yes. Um, what are we starting with? Well, let's start with just shop-bought soy milk. Now, I have not made soy milk, but this is the most widely drunk plant milk in the world still so we're going to use it okay. as kind of like a, a a control a benchmark a benchmark yes okay go. okay good so, so, suddenly um, feel like i'm a master chef and you're taking this seriously i so, like it so this is alpro yeah yeah it's been uh, around since the 80s okay you're swilling it around like it's a cocktail and spilling no, soya should. milk all over the floor stop no, doing should, that you should shake plant okay milk. normally with a lid on okay so <laughs> smells it's, like milk does, does it I mean, I honestly think that's disgusting. Okay. So that's before we've even got to yours. Now, that's the no sugar all pro, isn't it? Yeah, it's no sugar. It doesn't taste like milk. It tastes like soy milk. And it's for me, it's a bit emetic, honestly. Oh, really? That bad? Yeah. Yeah, I don't find that pleasant. And I can taste the oil. That's what we've... I mean, maybe just because we've just been discussing it. But I feel like it tastes not of milk, but more of oil. Okay, that's interesting. Right. So I've got two others here. So what we're going to jump onto next is oat milk. Okay. Because we can do a direct taste test. I'm not going to tell you which one we drink first. Okay. That's the whole point of the blind taste test. I see. Here we go. He's moving them around on the table like one of those uh, dodgy card shark geezers. Take your pick. Okay. So I don't know whether this is pit milk yep. or oatly. That's absolutely right. Yeah, you don't know. The smell is neutral. Okay. That's more pleasant. Uh, than the soy milk. More pleasant than the soy milk and taste. I mean, what it tastes of is milk, something close to milk. Okay, cool. I'd be happy with that as a milk substitute. Okay. I prefer milk, but it's fine. Okay. So I'm going to guess, therefore, that is the oatly and not the pit. <laughs> if you've made one that tastes like that, I'll be impressed. Come on. Okay. This one smells of oats, like overpoweringly of oats. <laughs> this one smells like a bowl of open <laughs> that's been left in the sun. <laughs> so this is definitely yours before I've even tasted it. Okay. But here goes. You've got the colour right, though. The colour looks right. Yeah, okay. Here goes. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. <laughs> is that really that bad? I mean, it's it's not intrinsically unpleasant but it isn't coffee so what would you say if i told you that that was oatly i'd 
tell you you're absolutely making that up. Yeah, and you'd yeah, be right. Yeah, that's yeah, right. That's yeah. Mine. Yeah, that is I mine. mean, weirdly, I prefer it to the soy milk that you can buy in the supermarket. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Oh, well, that's quite good. But, be- but because it's a more pleasant taste than the soy milk, mm-hmm. it tastes like oats. It tastes like an oat drink. Well, this if is you a- sold that as an oat drink, it's all right. Uh, it's, it's not, because I've drunk it straight. It's really disgusting. But this, is, <laughs> this is the thing with like making your own vegan milk. So there's loads of recipes out there, and it's actually really simple to do. The way to make it is it's literally oats and water. And yeah, you blend it tastes up. like it. Yeah, and yeah. you put it through a, 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 a nut bag or, or like a cheesecloth, that kind of thing. You uh-huh. filter it through. And I, when, it, when it came out, I was like, oh, wow, it actually looks like milk. This is going to taste really good. I'm really excited about this. I can make my own oat milk. I don't mm. have to buy it anymore. Mm. And then I tasted it. I was like, it's not creamy. It hasn't got any flavor. It literally tastes like slightly oaty water. Yes, it it's does. It's just not nice. Yep, agree. Good. What else have we got? Right, I called that, by the way. I've given that a brand name. Oh, one. sorry. That is Ollie's. What's it called, Ollie? Ollie's Oats. I, everyone will want to buy one, Ollie's Oats. Uh, so second milk. Oh, God, it's like a... I've, I've got this in a little cool bag, and it's like a load of samples of... Horse semen. Oh my god! So that one has, uh, I mean, lots of horse. The jar semen. is unattractive. Is is the thing? As you said, horse semen. You produce this jar that looks more medical than the Kilner jar. The first one was in. It does look very yeah, medical, it does. doesn't it? it does. And I, actually, I borrowed this off my in-laws, and I'm starting to wonder if it is medical. It's also separated. <laughs> yeah. So it, well, that happens. The creamier stuff is at the bottom. We'll give it a good old shake. Yeah. Good old shake. Lid on this time. Lid on. So I'm not going to tell you what milk this is. Mm-hmm. I just want you to drink it. Right. Do you want to have a whiff first? Always. No, come on, it's not that bad, is it? It is that bad. Let me have a Okay, I hate rice pudding and semolina <laughs> and that kind of thing. <laughs> and that is that smell, isn't it? Right, come on, let's have a taste. Like, I know immediately. To the extent that at my primary school, they used to give us semolina every Wednesday afternoon. I still remember this, even though I was six. And because I wouldn't eat it, like I used to put fistfuls of it into my pockets, feed it to the school cat, stuff like that, I wasn't allowed to play all break time. I had to sit there with the bowl of semolina looking at it for an hour every Wednesday for three years. And that smell has just taken me straight back to that. I've put it in the coffee for you there. Um, There are little bits in it. Don't worry about those. Yeah, I don't want to drink this. Best not to look. I'm controversially going to say, despite the abhorrent smell, that I can't taste anything apart from the coffee. (laughs) Tastes like coffee with extra water at the moment. Oh no, hold on, it's got a kick. I'm feeling it now. Yes. Yeah. There, oh, yeah, okay, maybe that's what I got. Because yeah. actually, the oat milk... No, for me, there we go. Kind of, yeah. It's that feeling like I might be sick. Suddenly yeah. just hit me, yeah. yeah. It was fine in the mouth. <laughs> it's when it went down the pipe. Yeah, so... Okay. That's probably straight in the bin, right, that what, one. What I, is it? Okay, so it's rice milk. Yeah, I knew it. Again, really easy to make. Water, <laughs> rice... <laughs> been listening to this review and you really want to make it at home what do you do just make some basmati rice and then drain it off you literally you make the rice (laughs) you make the rice and then you uh you sieve it and then you blend it it up in the water and then but you have to sweeten this one this got sugar in it oh well it's made all the difference (laughs) no it really hasn't has it no no so there we go okay i've called this one this is for the more health conscious I'm sure, individual, yes. Because it is literally just water and rice. I've called yeah. it Rice Simply. And the reason being because it's Simply Rice. Yes. Which is the name you'd think I'd... Why did you call it Simply I'd, Rice? That's yeah. the name you'd think I'd right. go for. Someone else has done that. So I've they? called it Rice Simply. Right. But, but why didn't you call it Simply Rice? Just as, because people because second guessed no, you? No, because it's the obvious... <laughs> It's because it's the obvious thing to go for, isn't it? Right. Simply rice. Is What's wrong with no, the obvious thing to go for? that's the tagline. You go, Rice Simply. <laughs> it's Simply Rice. I mean, skimmed milk is the obvious one to go for, isn't it? So I just have to call it milk skimmed. <laughs> Ollie, listen, people will go for that. I'm regretting not having had breakfast, I think. Now, this is the one that looks most suspicious. 
That's not the slogan. Yeah. <laughs> it's not actually. I won't tell you what this one's called. Okay. That's in a normal jam jar, so I feel a bit more comfortable about that. Okay. It's got that off-milk Benicoli type smell to it. <laughs> like something a bit curdled, like a yogurty. It smells the most dairy of all of them, but it smells like dairy that's possibly gone off. Oh, it might well have done, because I made this cup of dairy. Oh, marvellous. Great. I can't, I, can't, I can't swallow that. Oh, that's actually horrible. Ice bat. Yeah, no, that's... Oh, my good Lord, that is disgusting. Yeah, that's really bad, isn't it? Do you uh, hazard a guess what that might be? I, 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 honestly, I would not be surprised if you'd found it in a drain. <laughs> that's potato milk. Oh, is it? That is potato milk. So right. this is this is this the is trend for 2022. To, this is set to be the trend for 2022. <laughs> and I'm actually really disappointed that I haven't been able to get some. So I, I actually made that a few days ago, and um, uh, it, it it did say that it's only got a shelf life for like two days, so it mm. might well have passed its best. Yes. But... Passed its best. Is that <laughs> but, the trade name you're going I, with? Well, yeah. No, the trade name I've called it is Eight Toes Milk, because I just quite like that. Eight Toes, Potatoes, Eight Toes. Do you like that one? It's, it's the best you've come up with. It is, isn't it? So why did you um, take it upon yourself to give these... <laughs> Bastard children a name, <laughs> because um, that wasn't part of the challenge. No, you were just supposed to make milk, not brand it. Well, but I was trying to ride on the the gravy train or the milk train that mm. Oatly created, because it's been around since 1994, mostly in Sweden because it's a Swedish brand. But they just weren't getting anywhere with it, and then in the last few years they decided to go for a bit of a rebrand. Mm. And the packaging that you see now that you're familiar with now, this sort of oat lee with the exclamation mark, and then they've written all these notes on the side saying, ooh, well done for joining the vegan milk revolution, you <laughs> lovely person, all that kind of stuff. It's it, literally all in the branding to yes. the point where now, like last year, they listed it on the stock exchange and they were worth $10 billion. Right. That's how big they are now, although they haven't been able to meet the demand especially in the US so a load of other brands have actually just come in and released their oat milk instead and just eaten up all of the all of the market share I suppose I'd better go through the motions and ask you if you're going to continue making your own vegan milk at home yeah sure really oh no were you going to ask me Was yeah that the question yeah oh ask me again are you going to continue making your vegan milk at home no right um let's uh, look at your challenge for next month it's from Dave in Salford who says oh. I have recently discovered that my university is going to decide quote the universal sound for e-scooters. Right, yeah. I know, it takes a minute to swill around in your brain, that one, doesn't it? Like Ollie's oats. Uh, and whilst I love my uni, I wondered if Ollie could do a better job. Almost certainly. Making a sound for e-scooters. So, Compared to a university full of professors and scientists. That's right, yes. They want, yeah, I could, yeah. So the idea is, like, you know how there's like a sound for electric cars? Like they don't naturally make a sound, but now they do. <laughs> Right. Well, no, I've done it now. That's the challenge complete. We can just use. No, that no, because that's the electric car sound. You need to. You need to design a rival e-scooter sound. Uh... <laughs> and see if you can match the efforts from the University of Salford. Right. Why can't they just be silent? We've we, we've tested e-scooters. I tested them in Paris, didn't I? Mm-hmm. I, I don't even remember them having a sound. Well, that's the point, isn't it? Well, to to warn pedestrians and other I've vehicles. Got a bell on it. You'll find out. That's the challenge. <laughs> right, Learn right. as you go. Okay. Um, I'll try. If you've got a challenge for Ollie to try out in a future edition of the show, then visit our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk, and click on the feedback form. And our thanks, as ever, to the good people at Manscaped.com for sponsoring the Zeitgeist. Yeah, Manscaped has the the full package you need for spring cleaning this year. The performance package 4.0 is the only tool you need to keep your boys looking and smelling like fresh tulips. Your boys. Yeah. This Easter holidays, I will be on a beach. 
And I do have, like, horrifically, horrendously hairy shoulders. Like, I hate them. Okay. So, although um, the pube trimming for the season has been completed, you can always use your Manscaped Lawnmower 4.0 to remove your unsightly shoulder hair as well. I've and got I will a lot be of shoulder that. hair. It's I've actually quite that. fun. Get I've, I get my wife to do it. Get my wife. <laughs> wife! Shave my back! I'm just saying what happens. Right, okay. I perform similar tasks for her. Couldn't you do it yourself? No, because... You've shaved your wife's back? Some of it, no. Some of it's hard to reach. So right. I stand in the garden and she performs the shaving process Christ, for Right, like imagine a being Ollie Man's neighbours. <laughs> the point is, you feel less body conscious on the beach if you are bothered about that sort of thing. As I am, which is weird because I'm not bothered about hairy chest. It's, the, it's particularly the hairy shoulders that I, I don't want. Well, you have quite a smooth face as well, so you could finish off your grooming routine with the plough 2.0. <laughs> All of these products and more are available from manscaped.com and you can get 20% off and free shipping with the code MAN, M-A-N-N. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code M-A-N-N at manscaped.com. It's time to throw out your old hygiene habits and upgrade your life. See you next month. Uh, In a moment you will meet Charlotte, whose life and career has been inspired by her brother's experiences. But first, it is time for our record of the month and it's this by The Mysteries. It's called Dangerous. And it's out now. I was willing and able, but I was caught in your jaws. You caught me standing on the table. I saw you watching me fall. I was riding the fire. I was down on my knees. Oh, you said that Why do you do the job that you do today? My guest today, Charlotte Henry, is a criminal defence lawyer, and that's a profession that she got into thanks to the experiences of her brother, Alex. I started by asking her about their childhood, because when they were at school, where their dad was the caretaker, Alex was bullied and started playing truant. And when Charlotte was 11 and Alex was just 7, their parents separated, and Alex took it badly his behaviour got worse. But Charlotte was always a shoulder to cry on. Oh, he was a nightmare. He still is. (laughs) We're very, very close. Like, we speak. Um, He calls me 10 times a day, um, constantly on on the phone. um, He even says, uh, when we're older, I can picture me me and him sitting in the living room in our armchairs (laughs) watching TV. We're like, we're that close. But with that closeness comes, you know want to kill him sometimes because he's so annoying um but yeah so yeah we're very close (laughs) did you resent him a bit though I mean you know when this was going on with your parents and then the focus is all on him not you oh yeah I had so many arguments with my mum saying Alex because Alex would get away with anything and I thought that therefore she loved him more than me and that was the basis of a lot of kind of my arguments with my parents I'd be like you you know, you love Alex more. Alex gets away with anything. Stuff like that. And how did their divorce affect you? It was difficult, mainly because they had uh, shared custody. So I would be one day at my dad's, the other day at my mum's. It's very difficult to pack up your school books and stuff and have a different bedroom each night. So what kind um, of behaviour are we talking about here? So we used to get very agitated and walk around the room and move things around, like almost quite twitchy. 
And my dad had an axe for chopping up wood and he started like hitting the wood with the axe. But then with the axe, he then looked at the fireplace, which was also made of wood and just went chip like that, like impulsive, just chip. And it wasn't done in any form of aggression. It was, he was just obviously highly anxious at that point. Um, And it was just, he was walking around moving objects around and stuff like that. And I, I looked at him and I thought, oh God, here we go. So Alex, Alex put it down and then dad came down and noticed it quite quickly and went, right, which of you took that ax and hit the fire, fireplace? And Alex was like, it wasn't me. <laughs> and then I was like, well, it wasn't me. But yeah, and then dad kicked off. Eventually, Alex was expelled from his school and enrolled in a pupil referral unit, or PRU, the most common destination for kids excluded from mainstream education. My brother was very gifted and talented, especially in maths. He was always top of, of the class in maths, but there wasn't the level of teaching in those facilities to, to help him continue along that track. Um, some kids are in there... Um, because they're very naughty. Some kids are there because they have other difficulties. So it's, it was almost like a daycare centre for kids to keep them, try to keep them away from criminality. And then he stopped going to the pupil referral unit because he said, you know, this is pointless. Him, he, he kept saying it's pointless him going. He wasn't learning anything. Um, and so they came round and they installed a computer at my dad's house instead. And they said, fine, he's we won't come to the pupil referral unit. He can learn off this computer. And then I was like, oh, okay. So he's just out of education then at that point. Because that's, I mean, obviously listening to that now, loads of kids have just spent lockdown learning from home, but a computer in the early no 2000s software. is a slightly different yeah. scenario. <laughs> there, was, there was no software or learning stuff on, on this computer. Um, it was just the computer. So really Alex was left to his own devices from age 12. So he started hanging out with the other kids that didn't go to their pupil referral unit. Um, They would all hang out together and then he would actually turn up outside the school he was expelled from and say hello to his school friends. Did he ever turn up at your school or to your group of friends? How did you feel then? I mean, were you embarrassed by him? Uh, No, I kind of thought he was cool. So I I was um, in my high school and he turns up with a couple of his friends and um, they had a water gun and they water gunned my school. <laughs> and I was like, oh, it's my brother. And I thought my brother was quite cool for doing that. So <laughs> I'm four years older. I'm like, oh, my brother's cool. When did you start getting more concerned? Probably when I moved in with my dad and then the house started getting raided by the police. Yes, my mum moved out of London to be with uh, her, her boyfriend at the time. I just enrolled at Brunel University on, on a law degree and I moved in with my dad. And I think that's when I kind of saw, oh, this is actually quite bad because the police um, raided the house, I think like three or four times. What does that mean? Does that mean them turning up like in the middle of the night, banging on the door? So sometimes it was, they just come and knocked on the door to execute a warrant for arrest because they believed Alex did something. And so they would come in and they would also search the house. But another time it was at like four o'clock in the morning and it was the door was 
cracked off its hinges because they thought that we had loads of class A drugs on the property. And did you? No, no, we didn't. Um, it's because of the group Alex was hanging around in. So they believed that the group was involved in um, dealing class A substances. So everyone in the group's house was, was raided. Tell me about that group. Just normal, just like a normal group of lads. Um, the only distinction f- from them and other kids would be that they smoked a lot of cannabis. Same as Alex, expelled from school going to the Pru and then not attending Pru and too young to get a job. They've been wandering the streets for like two years. They're practically feral, but they weren't committing crime apart from smoking cannabis. And I think there was like a couple couple of like public disorder issues where they've had lots of swearing and yelling. So it was things like that, which were, would be frightening to the, the average person on the street to see. So the police came looking for drugs because presumably the gang were involved in drugs. They just weren't in your house. Does it feel weird me even using that word gang? Because you've just described this as this group of like quite diverse <laughs> people who actually the thing they had in common was that they were expelled from school. But that is kind of, they were a gang, right? That, I mean, the police probably thought of them as a gang. It depends on what your definition of a gang is. So I would class a gang as a group of people um, with some form of name or uniform or identity where they where they also believe they're part of a gang um i think it's quite a subjective thing so they have to believe that there's a belonging to a group and it's more than just friendship there's like a uniform it's an organization of sorts Mm -hmm. and i would then attach to the term organization an element of criminality um and you could also look at maybe territoriality i actually did my dissertation when i was doing my law degree my dissertation was gangs early intervention versus harsher sentences because i wanted to understand what has alex got himself in is it a gang um and what would be a way to break this cycle what did the police make of you i mean because there's a relationship that builds up isn't there between people that are frequently arrested and the police who sort of get to know them and go to their house and assume they're probably involved in things to find out if they are, oh, it'll be him. And then you're there saying, no, according to Clause 3.1. I did that. Yeah, I did that. (laughs) The police were quite disgusting. On one occasion, I had uh, wrapped loads of Christmas presents up and a police officer came in and purposely trod all over them. My brother's a child, right? Um, They've got Alex upstairs and they're arresting him for an offence. Um, which he was never convicted for, he was never charged with. Um, and I come upstairs and I'm trying to, he he just turned around to me and said, what kind of species are you to be living in a crack den like this? Wow. And then he walked up the stairs and as I said, my brother's a youth, I need to get past you. He barged me to try to get me to fall down the stairs. And every time I went, went tried to get past him, he slammed his shoulder that way, like at the last minute to try to get me to fall down the stairs. And I just said, well, you're being incredibly... Um, childish sir why don't you let me pass I'm gonna I'm, I'm going to try to get past you again I'm walking past you right now do not slam this way and he finally let me past and not all officers are like that there was one officer there that gave me the real eye of sympathy um, but this yeah that has happened in the past more often than not the police have not dealt they've dealt with me as if I'm a criminal and that it's my fault for living there Then, one summer's afternoon, things got even more serious for Alex. It was um, was Tuesday, the 6th of August, 2013. 
uh, I was off work that day. I can't remember why. I might have pulled a sickie. Um, <laughs> and uh, the police turn up at the door. Uh, I go downstairs. The police are there. And they say, um, we're really concerned for your brother's safety. And I thought, my brother's safety? And um, they said, we need his mobile number. So my mum said, go and get Alex's mobile number. And I ran upstairs. Um, and maybe this is because of my previous experience with the police. There was this lack of trust in, in the police officers. So the first thing I do is actually call my brother. And he, I said, the police are at the door. And he's like, are they? Oh, okay. And he was like, well, I'm fine. I said, they're worried about your safety. He said, oh, I'm, I'm fine. So I've come downstairs and I said, I've spoken to Alex. Alex says he's fine. I don't feel comfortable giving you his mobile number. How did they react to that? She was really angry at me. She was like, you've called him. And I said, well, you've, of course I've called him. You've told me you're worried for his safety. Why would I not call him? And then she was like, oh. And then she, my mum said, don't, my mum's a very upstanding citizen. She's a doctor. <laughs> so she, um, she turned to the police officer and said, oh, I'm sorry, I will give you his number. And then gave, gave um, the police Alex's number. And then the, the police officer looked at me and she said, I know you and your brother are very, very close but you have to make sure you do the right thing. And I thought, what was that about? So after the police left, I, at some stage, a lot later, I remember receiving a text message from my friend Kaylee that lives um, in Acton Town, which is quite close to Ealing Broadway. And she texts me and she says, someone's had their throat cut in Acton. And I say, oh my God. And she said, well, she'd heard from the local shopkeeper that some young lad has had his throat cut and is dead. So I call Alex and I say, Alex, um, some lad's had his uh, throat cut in acting. Is, every, is everyone okay? Like all of his friends and stuff. Because they released the age of the boy as well. And it was quite close to Alex's age. And uh, Alex says, yeah, yeah, um, everything's fine. What do you mean he's had his throat cut? And I said, well, just exactly that. He's had his throat cut and he's died in acting. And then afterwards, Alex starts calling me quite a lot saying, are you sure? Call Kaylee. Are you sure it was his throat? So I call Kaylee. Kaylee, are you sure it was? Is that what Andrew said? It was definitely the throat. And she says, 100% it's the throat. The shopkeeper saw everything. Um, and then so I go back to Alex. It's 100% it's the throat. The next day I was in work and... I got a call from Alex and he said, Charlotte, um, I need to borrow some money. And I said, well, how much do you need? And he said, I need, I think it was a few hundred pounds. And I said, I don't have a few hundred pounds. Like, I'm, like, I'm broke. <laughs> what do you need that for? And he was like, oh, are you sure you can't, you sure you can't borrow me it? And I was like, no, I'm not borrowing you it. Um, and then he said, okay, well, I have to tell you something else. Uh, I've got something really, really important to tell you. Um, but the first thing I need to tell you is that my girlfriend is pregnant. So he said that his uh, girlfriend is pregnant and on the Friday, it's their 12-week scan. And he needs to be at the scan on the Friday. But then immediately after the scan, he needs to be at the police station. So I didn't immediately go to the police station point. I went immediately to the pregnancy point because um, both are 
idiots. <laughs> um, and I can't believe that they went and, and got pregnant. So um, I was kind of excited, but also like, what is mom going to say? Oh my God, I'm going to be an auntie. So she's what, she's 12 weeks gone, is she? Yeah, so um, your emotions are full of that at the moment. Yeah, yeah. And um, what, what did her family say? I wanted to know all the details. Like what's her family said? And he almost has to like rein me back in because I've forgotten the police station part of this story. And says, no, you must listen to the rest of what I have to say. You have to take me and um, my girlfriend to the scan. And then you have to take me to the police station. And then so I said, okay, well, why are you, why do you need to go to the police station? And he said, I can't tell you because I don't want you to get in trouble. But, and, and I started then panicking, being like, well, what is it? Could it, like, what is it? Is it cannabis? You know, like going through low level things. And then he's he's like, no, I don't want to tell you. And I said, well, fine. Will you tell me when we're outside the police station when I'm when I'm there with you? Will you tell me then? And he says, I'll tell you then. Was it clear from that context, though, even just that, that it was a case of him turning himself in? I wasn't sure. He wouldn't tell me whether he was in trouble. What was he like on the day you went to pick him up? I didn't get to. On Thursday, he was arrested for attempted murder, murder and grievous bodily harm with intent. How did you find out about that? I was in my bedroom and I received a text from my dad. What did it say? A-M-M-G-B-H-18. Did you know instantly what that meant? Yeah, I knew instantly what that meant, yeah. It's something linked to this stabbing. It must be. Still to come, was Alex a murderer? And Charlotte's fight for justice. When the modern man returns, after this. Look, man fans, I know, shopping for clothes can be a hassle. How it looks on the model isn't always how it looks on you. You never know how things will fit, and there is just so much choice. Well, that is where Stitch Fix come in. They send someone, an actual living human, out to shop for you. Someone who knows your size, what you do and don't like to wear, and how much you like to spend on each item. Stitch Fix, quite simply, take the pain out of shopping for clothes. The outfits arrive at your door a few days later, and you get to try everything on at home, decide what to keep, and then send anything else back. It's so easy. A case in point, when producer Matt needed an outfit for the British Podcast Awards last year, as he'd already worn his wedding suit for the past three, he gave Stitch Fix a whirl, and he'd never look so dapper. Isn't that right, Matt? It is, actually, yeah. You usually pay a £10 styling charge, but listen up because we have a special offer for you. Sign up and schedule your first delivery using stitchfix.co.uk slash man, and the styling charge for your first order will be waived. So now you can try Stitch Fix's online styling service for free. Get started today at stitchfix.co.uk slash man to try Stitch Fix's personal styling service for free. Again, that's stitchfix.co.uk slash man. And if you keep all five items, you get 20% off. Stitchfix.co.uk slash man. Back to my interview with Charlotte Henry now. It's 2013 and her 20-year-old brother, Alex, who's just found out he's going to be a father, has also just been arrested for murder and GBH for events that occurred on August the 6th in Ealing Broadway. 
Of course, Charlotte couldn't know then what had really unfolded. But here's what she's learned since about what happened that day. So my brother was out shopping in Ealing Broadway that day uh, with three friends. He was with Janelle Grant-Murray, Eunice Taib, and Cameron Ferguson. There was a a sale at JD Sports and TK Maxx and they wanted to go and look through the sales. Quite quickly after arriving, um, Eunice Taib, who lives uh, a few short moments from the shopping centre, literally like off the off the main road, um, he decides that he wants to go and meet a friend to buy some cannabis and um, would meet the rest of them outside his house. It was a really hot day, so they intended to just kind of relax in the sun for the rest of the day after that. After Eunice left, um, Janelle decided to go and wait for Eunice outside of his house because it's sunny. As he walks down Eunice's road, he comes across a group of um, four men uh, that were just kind of socialising in the sun also around a parked car. Um, He made eyes with one of the young men, Taki Kaziki, and Taki Kaziki made eyes at him One of them gave the other one a disrespectful look. It can't be certain who gave that look. But what we do know, and which is captured on CCTV, is that Taki approaches Janelle, words are spoken. Janelle turns around and begins to walk back up Eunice's road towards the shopping centre. And where's Alex through all of this? Shopping, he's in TK Maxx or JD Sports, one of them, and he's on camera. You can see Janelle look over his shoulder and when he looks over his shoulder, he realises he's actually being pursued by these four men. Um, Janelle starts to kind of begin to walk faster. They walk faster. He begins to jog. They begin to jog. Janelle ends up sprinting. As he gets to the junction, the end of that road, uh, he bypasses Eunice. Eunice has arrived on scene and he says something to the effect of these guys are trying to bang me, as in fight him. Um, he runs into the uh, cost cutter which is right next to him and he grabs a bottle of wine and he comes out brandishing the bottle of wine as a weapon and you can see with his gesturing he's it seems to be that he's saying stay back or I'll hit you with the bottle Um, uh, in retaliation the uh, Borhane Kaziki and Taki Kaziki who are two brothers they remove their belts to use as, as weapons also and begin kind of lassoing them and then wrapping them around their knuckles Um, There's a standoff which takes place for probably around 10 minutes. It's like six 20-somethings in broad daylight. Late 20s as well. The four people that were behind cars, they were 27, 28 and 29, I think. And the youngest was Taki Kaziki at 21. My brother was the oldest in his group at 20. The rest were between 18 and 19. Um, And he's still in DK Maxx at this point? My brother's still in TK Maxx, yeah. The standoff goes on for about 10 minutes. During that time, Eunice persuades Janelle to put the bottle back in the cost cutter um, because the shopkeeper's outside being like, give me back my bottle. And so Janelle was like, well, if I put the bottle back, they're going to attack me. Um, But eventually he does agree to put the bottle back. He turns his back and begins to walk back to the cost cutter. And then the two brothers go loop around um, Eunice to attack Janelle. Um, which then means Janelle is not going to put the bottle back and the standoff continues. Uh, Eunice was acting as peacemaker and also Oladapo Dajani from the opposing group was also trying to act as peacemaker. So really it was just the two brothers versus Janelle. 
during the course of this confrontation, uh, Janelle takes a phone out of his pocket and he holds it to his ear. And Borhane later says that he heard Janelle call for knives to be brought to the scene. What we do know is that no phone call ever connected. So there wasn't any communication by phone. Whether he said it or not to try to scare them into leaving him alone is another matter. The argument continues. They cross over the main road. And at this point, my brother has left JD Sports and is now walking up the high road with Cameron Ferguson. He's on camera. The camera captures the moment when Alex stops walking and sprints and he runs and he's about two metres in front of Cameron, who's who's chasing and following Alex. Um, he runs into the scene, but where the scene is, is off camera. So the last point it captures him is probably 10 metres away from the scene itself, and he's sprinting. And that's when the 47 second clock begins to count down, because what happens next takes place within 47 seconds. Alex runs um, to Janelle's side, at that point, um, Janelle and Taki are going forwards and backwards kind of towards each other. Mobile phone falls out of Janelle's pocket. Alex picks the mobile phone off the floor. The bottle of wine has just been pulled out of Janelle's hand by Oladapo Dajani. So he pulls the bottle from Janelle's hand, which then means Taki lunges forward to attack Janelle, which then prompts my brother throwing the mobile phone at Taki. Janelle falls kind of backwards into Alex and pushes Alex back into the road. Simultaneously, Cameron Ferguson, who's come out of the uh, fray, goes up to Borhane. Borhane lashes Cameron Ferguson with his belt. Eunice Taib um, takes Borhane in a headlock. At that moment, Borhane feels something akin to a punch in, in his uh, back. Thinks nothing of it. And he can see that there's a fight going on in the background. So he says, let me get my brother. And Eunice lets go of him. Borhane goes up to Janelle and punches Janelle in the face. Immediately after, my brother punches Borhane and grabs Janelle and they um, leave the scene. They run straight back towards the shopping centre. During that 47 second time frame, Cameron Ferguson stabbed two people. He stabbed Borhane at the point that he was being held in a headlock and he stabbed Taki at some other later point within that 47 seconds. Cameron Ferguson being the guy that had been in the shop with your brother. With Alex, yeah. And then went running into the scene with Alex. With Alex, yeah. And then he fled the scene down another route alone. So before the fight had had come to an end, he had already left the scene and that's captured on camera. So what you know now is that Cameron Ferguson stabbed two people, but your brother ran into a fight, threw a punch and threw a phone, mm-hmm. but didn't stab anybody. Yes. At the time you didn't know that and he was being charged with murder, did you think he might have been involved in the murder? Did no. you think he was capable of that? No. I've never seen Alex be violent, even when he had his meltdowns. Um, he's never hit me. He's And I've hit him. I remember I was... He really infuriated me and I was physically violent towards him on occasion, but he never hit me back. It was just like an automatic assumption this would be joint enterprise. It didn't enter my psyche. Okay, so legal term, joint enterprise. What's that? Joint enterprise is where, uh, it's a colloquial phrase actually, and it's where 
two or more people are convicted for the same offence. So one person commits the offence as the principal offender, which is the person that, layman's terms, committed it, physically committed it. Um, a secondary offender is a person that you, you probably have heard of aiding and abetting. Um, so it's a person that aid abets, counsels or procures the offence and intends to do the offence along with their principal counterpart. So I can already see how that could be pieced together by the police because you've got him on CCTV running into the offence with the person who does the stabbing. Yes. So that exactly. was the charge. He was aiding and abetting Cameron. Well, this is probably reflective of how much of a crap law student I was I didn't actually know that there was an emergence of a different type of joint enterprise in 1985 and that existed at the time that my brother was charged. Um, and this is where you don't have to aid a bet, counsel or procure the offence at all. It's, an, it's enough that you engaged in one crime, which can be a common assault, a violent disorder or an affray, which is a fight. Mm, which you definitely did. Yeah. And you foresee the possibility that one of your group might go on to commit a further crime um, crime B, which would be the murder. So instead of intentionally participating in it by aiding and abetting, Alex could be convicted of murder if he foresaw the possibility that one of his friends might commit murder. Not would commit it, but might commit it. You must have had to have done a lot of swatting up in the period between him being charged and the case coming to court. Oh, yeah, I did. <laughs> um, I, yeah, all my books got dusted off and um, started uh, researching again just to understand it. Um, I knew quite quickly, I think it was that night, I knew that they would have to prove that Alex knew Cameron Ferguson had a knife. From the evidence that had been served just at that early date, there didn't seem to be any evidence that Alex knew Cameron Ferguson had a knife. In those weeks and months leading up to the trial... What were you telling Alex on the phone? Well, mostly we were discussing kind of what happened. We were discussing the evidence. A lot of our conversations were just chatting, trying to take his mind off things by chatting about things that weren't trial related. Was he anxious about the baby? Yeah, yeah. Um, so he wanted to know that the baby was, was healthy, that the scan went well. Um, I remember at one point us discussing the possibility that he might be offered a manslaughter plea. Will he plead guilty to manslaughter? And us, or GBH within 10, and whether he would accept that. And I was adamant that he shouldn't accept that um, because he didn't know Cameron had a knife. He didn't foresee that someone would be stabbed. Um, it's important to mention that there was no prior association between the four strangers and Alex's group. Alex ran in not knowing them. And because there was none of this prior knowledge, you couldn't say that this was a retaliation for anything or there was some form of prior intent or knowledge that something was going to happen. It really was a 47-second incident which happened and Alex ran into it and just saw his friend being attacked. Um, but the, the barrister said, with these joint enterprise cases, it really is 50-50 because the law is... All they have to prove is that he knew his friend had a knife. Once you know your friend has a knife and you're involved in a fight, of course you can foresee that his, his friend might stab someone. You can foresee all manner of things. Every time I'm on a plane, I foresee the possibility that it might crash. And you just hope that it doesn't. Yeah, and you're talking about groups of people in parts of London that routinely carry knives, frankly. So 
even if he did know then, he might not have known, but it would still be likely that he might have been. I mean, that's just who you're hanging around with. That doesn't mean that you support murder. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the barrister said 50-50 on whether he gets convicted or not. And the difference is enormous in terms of sentence, right? Because if it's joint enterprise murder, the sentence is the same as if he personally had done the stabbing, right? Yes. Once you're convicted under joint enterprise, you're liable to be sentenced as if you inflicted the fatal blow yourself. Whereas if murder isn't proven, then what would the charge even be? Um, Manslaughter? Manslaughter. So if Alex didn't foresee that a knife would be used um, to cause serious bodily harm, but foresaw some level of harm might be caused, then that would be manslaughter, which might be like 12 years, do six. Right. Whereas murder is life. Murder starts for 25 years, mandatory minimum sentence. And you don't, you serve your whole tariff and then you apply for parole. 25 years is the earliest point in which you might be released if you satisfy the rules on parole. So you're talking about the difference between, well, between Alex seeing his baby when they're six years old Mm. or when they're an adult. Yeah when the child is older than Alex was before Alex went to prison. I was really unwell at the time. So um, I got signed off sick from work, I think just before the trial. Um, But yeah, just couldn't sleep, um, was put on a variety of medication just to try to get get through it. yeah, very distressing for our family. What was the moment in court where they tried to prove that he had known about the knife? Because it, it all seems to pivot on that. It was during Alex's cross-examination. So Alex gave his evidence and the prosecutor then gets a chance to question Alex on the on his evidence. So he started asking Alex um, uh, what he likes to do with his friends. So how often do you see Cameron Ferguson? How long have you known Cameron Ferguson? He said, I've known Cameron Ferguson for six months. I would say that we're pretty close. I do see him, you know, a few times a week, maybe more. What do you talk about when you're with Cameron? We talk about everything. Girls, football, what everyone's doing. And he said, oh, because you talk about everything. Yeah, yeah, everything. And then the penny drops. Well, not everything, everything. You talk to Cameron about everything. So if you talk to him about everything, then surely you must have spoken about the knife that Cameron had. Um, And Alex obviously denied that. And in the uh, closing speech to the jury, the prosecutor said, well, you can be sure Alex knew Cameron had a knife because friends tell each other everything. So friends tell each other everything Cameron would have told Alex he possessed the knife before the shopping trip. And then during the course of the fight, Alex would have remembered that, known Cameron had a knife and foresaw the possibility that the knife might be used. And the jury accepted that. I thought, no jury, you have to be sure beyond reasonable doubt of of each, each point. So they would have to be sure beyond reasonable doubt that Alex knew Cameron Ferguson had a knife in order to convict him. And I thought, friends tell each other everything. It's not enough that to is convict not enough. someone of murder. Yeah. 
I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? Their hands are tied as a jury, obviously, in that the crime is joint enterprise, whether they agree or disagree that that should be on the statute books. Mm. But if the evidence that's required to convict is that he knew and it hasn't been proven, apart from through insinuation, Mm. it must be very difficult for you watching that and knowing, really, that a different group of 12 people might come to a different decision about that piece of evidence. Mm. Yeah, I think... um... Oh, I'd hope a group, another group of 12 people would come to a different decision. I hope for humanity's sake <laughs> that, um, that that was just a really bad jury. Um, but I don't know. Maybe that's what it, people do believe, that maybe they think that is enough. They would be sure beyond reasonable doubt that friends tell each other everything. On the um, 12th of March... 2014 the jury handed down their verdict Uh, me and mum were in the court that day the foreman was asked to rise and um, they started with Janelle Grant Murray and uh, the judge asked the foreman how do you find Janelle Grant Murray for murder and he said guilty my mum she's in such a state next to me that she can't hear it's like she just completely lost all of her hearing and she kind of falls off of her chair and she's grasping at me going is that Alex is that Alex and I look across and I can see um Janelle's family who was sitting next to us who are just silently crying just there's no noise they're just staring and there's just tears falling down their face I turn to my mom and I'm like no that's not Alex um that's Janelle and so she's just really not very well and they ask um, the foreman of the jury, how do you find Yunus Taib? Yunus Taib, the one that was peacemaker throughout, apart from that holding him in a headlock. And the foreman said, uh, we find Yunus Taib not guilty. And uh, my mum, this kind of light burst into her eyes and she was like, is that Alex? Like this hope. And I said, no, that, that's not Alex, that's Yunus Taib. And she's still kind of messed up. Um, and then they said, how do you find Alex Henry? And the foreman said, guilty. And my mum said, is that Alex? And I said, yes, mum, really sorry, that is Alex. And my mum's just like screaming. Um, The security come and they're trying to remove her, but she she can't control herself. She's just on the floor. It's like learning your child has died. Not, obviously we can't say it's the same. Alex is still in front of me and we can see he's alive, but it's a real blow to the system. Uh, And so I, my kind of concentration was just on Alex and making sure he's okay. And what and was he doing? He just looks up and he just looks very white and pale and he just says, is his mum okay? And I lie and I'm like, oh, mum's fine. And um, I've got like tears running down my face, but I'm trying not to allow, like I'm trying not to cry to show it visually. Um, and that's it, he's quite quickly taken away. So following conviction, a member of the public wrote to me via Alex's website that I created, which is dedicated to exonerating Alex. And from the way I described Alex in a Daily Mail magazine article, she believed that Alex might have autism. Hmm. So when I heard that, I thought, no, Alex doesn't have autism because he's got quite a lot of empathy. And that's probably one of the reasons we're quite close. We, like, he does have empathy with me and he's very kind towards me. 
So I pretty much like ignored it. Um, anyway, um, a few months afterwards, it's Christmas and um, my mum's chatting to my grandparents and she said, she said something like, I've always thought there was something, you know, wrong with Alex, something there. I'm really disappointed that we never got it kind of examined before trial. And I said, oh, funny, you should say that actually. Um, this woman has, has written to me and she says she thinks Alex has autism and she's even gone so far as to provide all the links for the local the local Hounslow autism places to try and get a diagnosis. So she, she must know what she's talking about because she seems, or maybe she's in the profession. And uh, my mum, that was like red rag to a ball. She was going for that. My mum's actually a doctor of psychology and uh, she use kind of her connections to try and find out who the best uh, people were in the field of autism. And obviously the best was Professor Simon Baron-Cohen, who's the head of the Autism Research Centre at Cambridge University. He did it pro bono for free. Um, So visited Alex at his then prison, which was in Cambridgeshire, and uh, diagnosed Alex with autism. And he wrote a long report which said that autism is very relevant to his current conviction because it's highly unlikely Alex would have known Cameron Ferguson was going to stab the victim, foreseen he was going to stab the victim, and therefore Alex can't be guilty. Because there's an absence of that sort of... Foresight. Yeah. Autistic people, they have this thing called um, a deficiency with theory of mind. So theory of mind is our ability to um, understand the emotions and intentions of other people and then predict other people's behaviours. Alex would have really, really struggled to know that Cameron Ferguson possessed the requisite intent and foresee that he would act on that intent by stabbing the victim in 47 seconds in a very fast-moving situation. I mean, if there was a fight between a group of people that I knew, even if I did know that one of my friends had... I mean, okay, I don't hang out with people that have knives on them, but they might have a pen knife or they they might have, like you say, a bottle. Lots Mm. of things could be used as a weapon. I mean, the the fact that I knew they potentially had a weapon, it seems insane that that could justify a charge of murder. Yeah, I agree. And... The Supreme Court agrees with us both because the law was in fact abolished. They said that um, foresight is not enough. You must intentionally participate in the crime by providing assistance or encouragement. So if Alex's exact case came to court now, he couldn't be charged with that? Well, he he might still be convicted. They might still think that his um, presence is encouragement or, you know, that he physically assisted by being part of the fight. Um, But certainly his conviction is unsafe. He was convicted under a law which has now been abolished. And also, very importantly, the current law, Alex must have known that his friend would stab someone, not just foresee it. There has to be knowledge. And in the factual matrix of Alex's case, it is accepted that it's spontaneous. It's accepted that it's between strangers. And it's accepted that it happened in a very short space of time. And the evidence suggests there was no prior communication between Cameron and Alex. And yet he is still in prison. He is. He's uh, Because when you appeal based on a change in the law, um, it's very difficult. We have to actually prove that we're innocent of the offence. So we have to prove that if we were to be tried today, the jury categorically would not have convicted us. Of anything? Of murder. But if you can't be charged with murder because the charge doesn't exist anymore, that's so, not provable, is it? It's, well, it's, not, it's not provable because juries don't give reasons for their decision. So although the jury um, only had to 
find in these cases that the defendant foresaw that someone else might die, it doesn't mean that they wouldn't have also believed that they intended to assist or encourage the offence too. And currently, the law, um, you could be convicted of murder for just your mere presence at the scene because presence is enough for the jury to infer encouragement from. So the evidential bar for the current law going forward because mere presence is enough, because that is so low, how can we prove that we wouldn't have been convicted? So this has come to a head recently, hasn't it? It's been an ongoing campaign you've been involved in, but what's the latest? Um, Since all of, I, I suppose this has all gone down, I've qualified as a lawyer and I've drafted a private member's bill private members bill means something to be debated in the house of commons yes and how do you get that in the queue you just campaign your local mp at the start of every term um i think i'm using these words right i'm not entirely sure (laughs) the mps pull their name out of a ballot and people that are kind of number one to five get the the most amount of time on the parliamentary calendar to bring forward a bill and debate it and try to get it through going to wait till the next term and find out who's at the top of the ballot and then try to write to them but in the meantime in case that doesn't work uh, we're circulating um, a parliamentary briefing pack with the bill and um, a letter which is addressed to government to try to get their support for our private members bill. Do you get the sense that there's momentum behind it? Yes we've, we've got a number of MPs that are happy to take this forward although obviously our aim will be going for someone with the ballot there's probably, I'm going to go with like 30 MPs, ballpark figure now, which is 10% of what we want. The problem is, I guess, that it's a difficult sell as an election winner, isn't it? I think mm. most people listening to this who have been on the journey with you and understand Alex's story would absolutely agree with what you're campaigning for. Mm. But I'd also speculate that most people, man in the street, if they heard, do you think someone who's behind bars for murder should be retried to lessen their sentence a bit, that they might still be found guilty of murder? It's a harder sell, isn't it, to campaign for in a general election? I think if you say someone's been convicted of murder, but the law that convicted them was abolished, Hmm. there's a decent chance that they might be innocent Hmm. should they have a retrial. They were convicted on the basis that they foresaw not intended or participated in. I hope, by and large, people would agree that that person deserves a retrial. And you don't think that joint enterprise in itself is problematic, right? So, like, if the classic example is someone and their accomplice rob a jewellery store and, you know, the you're guy... You're in it together. You're guilty you're together, in it together, yeah. So the guy who smashes the window is just as guilty as the guy who's waiting in the bike to, to take him away. Yeah. Because they've planned it together. It's Absolutely. just in this specific case of murder and knowledge knowledge and no participation yeah so if alex had for example said stab him cam alex is guilty as a murderer you've encouraged murder of course alex would be guilty and i tell you what it would almost be a relief to me because i wouldn't have the you know the weight on my shoulders to keep fighting which is exhausting i mean even if it all goes your way so even if actually your bill gets debated and parliament backs it and then there's an appeal and then Alex wins the appeal, you're still talking years away, right? Yes. <laughs> um, it's, you know, it's very likely that Alex might have served his, his whole sentence. He's got 11 years left of his sentence. Um, he might have served that already by the time he's released, but he won't be subject to life licence. So at least he'll be out and can live his life rather than, you know, 
the fear of being recalled back into prison and monitored in the community and having something as horrible as murder. There's no, you know, there's no worse a crime, is there? And what about for you? What's motivating you? Keeping Alex alive. You know, suicide is not uncommon in prison. And if you, you're a miscarriage of justice and you've been wrongfully in prison for 19 years... So yeah, keeping him alive is probably my motivation. And second to that, getting him out of prison. Charlotte Henry. If you'd like to support her campaign, there's a petition you can sign and you can download her briefing pack to send to your MP as well. Links are on our website. And remember, if you've got a story you'd like to share on the show, just fill out the feedback form there as well, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. Up next, we're off down the foxhole to talk Prince Albert piercings. Alex Fox is back with your sex questions after this. Time to get jiggy in the big city because just like that, Alex Fox has moved the foxhole to NYC. How are you doing now, Alex? Well, I'm still calling myself Flemony Snicket after the series of unfortunate events that befall in my respiratory system, but I'm now fully repaired from pneumonia uh, and I no longer Ooh, feel pneumonia, like a... was it? Yeah, yeah. Well, it was... First of all, I had an accident where I smashed my knees up in an immersive theatre performance. <laughs> Standard me. Very classic Fox, yeah. I feel. That could happen anywhere in the world to you. Pretty much, yeah. But then it meant that when I got gastric flu, I literally couldn't run to the toilet in time, which was um, humiliating experience but brought me and my partner a lot closer at very fast speed but then unfortunately I had the flu so long that it developed into pneumonia so I couldn't actually leave my flat and explore the Big Apple for a a full fortnight and I did actually feel like um, one of Ollie Pitt's decomposing bodies but um, going through that whilst still alive for a while but now I'm back. (laughs) I'm glad you chucked that reference in to prove that you continued to listen to the show even when you weren't on it but for anyone who missed it. Ollie was talking about decomposing bodies in the last edition. He doesn't. He's not known for keeping them in his about his person. <laughs> not that we know of. Okay, time for this month's question of sex, brought to you by our friends at thehandy.com. A big hand to Handy, the advanced penis masturbation machine, for sponsoring the segment. And it's from Luke, who says, "Hi, Alex. I'm a straight man living in the north of the UK, and I have a question about genital piercing." So. <laughs> Don't say you weren't warned. <laughs> I'm considering getting a standard Prince Albert piercing. Oh, just standard. There is a lot of con- average Tuesday. Standard. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there is a lot of conflicting information online regarding healing times and the enhancements of sexual pleasure for both myself and my partner. Can you give me the pros and cons of getting my dick pricked? All right. Prince Albert, probably the least scandalous of all the royals at this point, to be honest. (laughs) Um, There's a variety of uh, stories and and urban myths about why this particular piercing is called Prince Albert. Um, One of the most popular tales is that uh, the consort of Queen Victoria himself had this piercing, either to correct Peyronie's disease, which um, causes a curvature of the penis, and he was supposedly trying to... um, try to ameliorate that by by hanging some some metal off it or that he actually had this ring fitted so that he could thread a ribbon through it and tie his his penis to the side of his leg so it looked more subtle in tight victorian trousers to sort of like literally contain to make it more festive in the bedroom (laughs) 
<laughs> Maybe that too. You know, you could put some tinsel through it when uh, when Christmas came around. Um, the likelihood is that that is bullshit because the, the Prince Albert as a piercing itself was popularised a good few decades ago by a guy called Jim Ward. And he had a buddy called Doug Malloy who was actually famous for making up all these uh, quite whimsical folkloric tales to uh, to make the process of piercing I guess um, seem even more mysterious and exciting and a lot of those have entered into common common culture now. Okay but can we just define exactly what it is because I, I did the work that you don't have to now I went on google images and I searched for Prince Albert piercing and a rainbow of different styles of piercings came up on that search result and not all of them were what I thought I think frankly a lot of people out there think they know what a Prince Albert is but with with some authority, Alex, what exactly is a Prince Albert piercing? You're 100% right. I think there's lots of ways to hang jewels off your family jewels, but because people know the phrase Prince Albert, lay people mm. often use it just to mean general dick piercing. Specifically, a Prince Albert piercing goes through the underside of the penis at the juncture of the, between the head and the shaft, and the jewellery then goes through the urethra, so few, through your pee hole, and comes out of the tip there, through the, the urinary meatus. Um, you can also get what's called a reverse PA or reverse Prince Albert that goes from the top of the glands and passes through the urethra but either way they both go through your pee hole right yes yeah, so literally through the eye through the eye of the tiger yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> because, and also then so the pictures that I saw as well were of circumcised penises which is another thing I think some people colloquially talk about it being a pierced foreskin but it isn't is it it's not a pierced foreskin actually whether or not you are circumcised is something t- key to consider when you're okay. uh, thinking about adding this particular style of jangle to your dangle. I spoke to two people, the first being Elaine Angel who is a piercer who specialises in putting holes in genitals and nipples. She's the author of the Piercing Bible which has recently been updated and also Mike Hill, uh, my buddy in Bath who runs Broad Street Studio he has seven genital piercings himself and uh, and has pierced me, albeit not below the belt. They both told me that even though a Prince Albert piercing looks quite full on, it actually encompasses much less skin than the average earlobe piercing. It goes through some of the thinnest pierceable tissue on the body. And yeah. because it actually goes through the urethra, which is a an area where there's it's quite vascular, there's a, there's a lot of blood, but there isn't really so much cartilage, um, it's a relatively easier piercing to heal than you might imagine. It generally takes about four to eight weeks of healing. Um, the process of piercing itself is fairly fast, thank fuck, frankly. Um, it yeah. involves putting a little tube down your pee pipe, which a lot of a lot of uh, people actually say oh. is the most uncomfortable part. So it's generally oh, warmed and lubricated to, to try and ease that discomfort as much as possible first. But mm. yeah, they pop that little tube in and then with a the needle pierce from the outside into the tube and then thread the jewellery through. Depending on your own personal body, the bleeding that follows that can be particularly alarming. Not for everybody, not everybody bleeds. But if it does happen, then don't be surprised if your piercer equips you with what's known as a rubber chicken, which is where they'll wrap the end of your uh, meat and two veg in some medical gauze and then put a medical latex glove or rubber glove on the end. Um, it kind of looks like a coxcomb. It looks sort of like a chicken's head, but it's loose enough that it allows the blood to be caught in the fingertips of the glove um, and is apparently more comfortable than trying to use a condom to to catch all that goo so so that's a delight I mean and 
the healing process, you know, when you're talking about an earlobe, I mean, you're not using that earlobe for anything else, right? But when you're talking about your penis, that's something that even if you're abstaining from sex or manage to control your erections, you still need to wee out of. You need to wee out of the very hole that's been pierced. So you can be agitating it, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, another thing to consider is not just that it, it might sting uh, when you go to drain your spuds. Um, but also, if you put an extra hole in the place where pee and ejaculate tends to come out of, uh, you might find that it, it's uh, more difficult to control your spray uh, for either of those those liquids. So it is quite common for people with Prince Albert piercings to, particularly if they want to piss standing up, um, they have to develop a method where they, they sort of like hold their finger over the piercing hole in order to direct their stream better. Um, so that is right. something to consider, um, along with things like Obviously, if you're going to let anyone with a sharp instrument close to your instrument, you want them to be as qualified as possible at doing that. So when you're looking for a piercer for this kind of thing, you want to check that they're a member of the Association of Professional Piercers, or APP, who are a non-profit who are dedicated to educating people on safe body piercing practices. Um, You'll want them to have done plenty of genital piercing specifically throughout their history, and you'll want to make sure that they they check out your body specifically because every body is different which means that every piercing needs to be different both in terms of where it's placed and how it's done Mm. and also uh, the style and size of the jewellery because penises change size when they become erect it's important for example not to have a ring or a barbell in there that's too thin or it can effectively yeah it can act as a cheese wire uh, when you're trying to get down to business Okay. And what's the relevance of the foreskin then? So why would that make a difference? Why is that one of the things to consider? Because of where the Prince Albert piercing is located, you need to make sure that the jewellery won't restrict your foreskin either when you're flaccid or when you're erect. So the foreskin needs to be able to cover the penis as the head of the penis as it would do usually, but also fully retract comfortably. If it's getting stuck in either position, then that can have major health impacts. So the piercer that you see needs to know enough specifically about penile anatomy to be able to judge what's going to work best for you. We get it. Find someone who's good. Don't go to Claire's <laughs> accessories. Okay, fine. <laughs> when it's done, what's the purpose then? So Luke says, you know, the enhancement of sexual pleasure for both myself and my partner. So let's talk through that. What sexual pleasure might he get? What sexual pleasure might she get from him having had a Prince Albert? Again, this is very much idiosyncratic to the the person or people experiencing a Prince Albert. But most most guys I've spoken to, and that's been a lot throughout my 15-year career, the look I of I may it, have spoken to many as well. <laughs> Don't just assume that it's only you. I just wouldn't know. So I could be speaking to someone with a Prince Albert piercing and not even realise. But anyway, carry on. Well, in that case, you will know then that a lot of a lot of people say that they like the way it looks on their penis. They like the extra weight of it. They find that because it's stimulating a very, very sensitive part of the body that enhances those orgasmic feelings. And just day to day, it kind of feels nice to have something nestled in that, in that part of your body. Um, for partners during penetrative sex, having that jewellery rubbing on the inside of them can also be really pleasurable and and lots of people report that it it helps them to achieve orgasm and to achieve pleasurable sensations. Um, One thing to bear in mind though is if you and your partner are already quite a tight fit 
having a, ch- a fairly chunky Prince Albert can actually cause issues. Um, during that healing process, that four to eight weeks, you will be required to wear condoms, both for oral or penetrative sex, because you don't want any type of bodily fluid or saliva to get in that hole before it's healed. Other things to bear in mind in terms of impact on you and your lovers are that um, if someone's going down on you and you've got a big old chunk of stainless steel or whatnot uh, in your dong, uh, it could possibly damage their teeth. Uh, so that's something <laughs> <laughs> that's something to be aware of. Wow. So get dental insurance before you get your Prince Albert. <laughs> Uh, You'll also want to be aware that it can catch on things. If your partner, for example, has a clitoral hood piercing, depending on the the type of jewellery, there's there's the chance that you could get chained to them like a suffragette protesting, chained to the railings, except you're (laughs) chained while you're getting railed. Um, And it can get caught on things like lace or fishnets. So it's, it's worth thinking about what kind of underwear you're wearing as well. Does it go off in the metal detectors at WH Smith? You beat me to it. That was exactly the thing I was about to get to. Um, because most piercings aren't made of ferromagnetic metals, no, they don't tend to set off the scanners. Um, it might be visible in, in certain scans, but it shouldn't cause problems for you. And can you take them out? I mean, is it like an earring? You can. I can tell from your tone that you shouldn't. I think that's all we need to know. If you decide that you would like your Prince Albert to abdicate from your dick... (laughs) Well, just step back from duties like a Prince Andrew. (laughs) Ideally, you need to retire it, retire your piercing is the correct term, within the first four weeks to actually have the best chance of the whole healing up neatly. Um, If you take it out after that... uh, just in this particular part of the body, um, most people report that they still have some kind of hole there. It never quite closes up. So those um, that, those effects when it comes to ejaculation spray or your pee looking like it's um, the flumes at Waterworld, mm. that will probably affect you even after you take the piercing out. So, yeah, it's a good thing to consider. Okay. Um, if you have a question of sex, you need to head over to our website, monmanwith2ends.co.uk, and click on the feedback form, and we will be back in a month's time with another question for Alex to answer in association with our friends at thehandy.com. Uh, well, they've actually released, uh, not long ago in February, their new True Grip second-generation stimulating sleeve. It's av- available to buy at the Handy site now. Um, this sleeve is super elastic, and it's a little bit longer than the original, so it works for all shapes and sizes of peen, probably even a dodecahedron. And we've got a code, haven't we? So you can get money off this uh, hands-free stimulation. We have, if you head to thehandy.com, which um, very important distinction, not handy.com, that's a place to hire a handyman, although you could visit both <laughs> for the ultimate born experience, I suppose, uh, and use the code FOXHOLE, then we'll give you free express shipping. That's free express shipping when you use the code FOXHOLE at thehandy.com. See you next month, Alex. Toodaloo! And with that, we have very nearly reached the end of this edition of The Modern Man, but there is just time to appoint a new Manbassador. It is Judy from Eureka, New Zealand, who says, I was feeling very despondent at the end of last month's episode when your bumper Manbassador appointments did not include me, but did include someone from Auckland. Bit needy. To bribe my way into your good books, I am buying you a beer. Thank you, Judy. That worked. Eureka is a small rural area just outside Hamilton in the North Island of New Zealand, and in the spirit of the last episode, I would propose a joint ambassadorship with my cat Spooky, but that might upset the dogs. 
You've overthought this, Judy, but I am pleased to now appoint you Manbassador to Eureka. Congratulations. If you'd like to be a Manbassador, buy us a beer, drop us a line. Links in the show notes. In the meantime, our theme music is by Django Django. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill, and we'll see you with something new on May the 10th. So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Tuesday, we head to the battlefields of medieval Spain to witness the very first ambulance. On Wednesday, it's the anniversary of the day Coca-Cola's creator hit on his winning formula. He dropped the wine, but kept the cocaine. On Thursday, the thief who stuffed the crown jewels down his trousers. And on Friday, when free-spirited Danish parenting put 90s New York in a tears. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every week. Day wherever you get your podcasts.